Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Hey, Reunion family. Our uh, Sunday sermon got uh, messed up. And so I figured I would hop in a booth at WeWork and do a little re-recording, particularly because uh, this teaching um, from Sunday was really around um, um, the Lord's Supper, communion. And I think that uh, as a church, uh, as a practice that we have every week, it would be good to um, speak to why as we're finishing up Mark's Gospel we're following Jesus towards the cross in his resurrection life uh, at Easter Sunday, and we're going to finish Mark, um, but it would be good, I think, to, to keep this uh, on here. So Mark chapter 14, uh, verses 12 through 25. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread in the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it was written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so this week I did a little bit of math on um, each of these Gospels. Um, And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are attempting to follow the life and the ministry of Jesus. And really what we find is that what takes up a large portion of each of the Gospels is the last week of Jesus' life. And this is just an estimate, but um, Matthew from chapters 21 to 28 are devoted to the last week or this holy week. So that's eight chapters of the 28 chapters in Matthew. So 30% of the book of Matthew is about the last week of Jesus' life. Luke is about 20% about the last week of Jesus' life. And then Mark and John are almost 40% about one week of the life of Jesus. So massive chunks of the gospel are actually spent on Jesus' impending death and what he's ultimately come to do. And so uh, the, the week timeline that um, we are on here, so um, Sunday is the triumphal entry. And then um, in the text, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, Jesus is coming in and out of Jerusalem. Uh, 
He's in Jerusalem. He's um, having dialogue with the religious leaders. He's teaching. He's clearing the temple. And each evening in the beginning of this week, he's returning to Bethany. And then Wednesday, um, this plot sort of picks up to kill Jesus. Into Thursday, where our text is today, we have this Passover meal or the Last Supper. And Thursday night, Jesus is going to be found praying in the garden. It's going to be where his um, betrayal and arrest is. And then Friday, what we traditionally call Good Friday, is, is Jesus' Jewish and Roman trial. Um, his crucifixion, he's nailed to the cross about the ninth hour, the text says. So it's 3 p.m. And then his body is laid in the tomb Saturday um, sometimes called Holy Saturday, a day of silence, of grieving, anticipation, and then into Sunday, you have the empty tomb witness. And this Thursday night is where we find ourselves in the text here, the Last Supper. And what Jesus does is he, he tells his, his disciples, I want you to make preparations for Passover with me. And really what the text, verses 12 through 16, is trying to say is, Jesus has a plan. This is what Jesus wants. No one is forcing Jesus to do these things. He's controlling the narrative to the cross. And what it is, is it's illustrating his deep obedience to the Father. And at the end of this text, um, what you really find is that Jesus is instituting a meal. And I'll use these words um, um, in tandem here, like the Eucharist, communion, or the, the Lord's Supper, but what we find is that the text is actually hinged on two meals. First, the Passover, which I'll speak to here in a second, and then the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so the Passover is mentioned a couple times here, and so it's really important that we understand. And I, I, I love actually that how Mark, uh, the, the uh, author of the Gospel of Mark, sort of assumes that we as the reader know what Passover is. Uh, but this is actually what makes the Bible uh, often difficult to understand is that we're actually detached from the story world of the Bible. And so what is Passover? Uh, Passover uh, is a festival in the Jewish year where Jewish people remember what God did in the ex Exodus narrative, uh, liberating the Israelite people from slavery and oppression of Pharaoh. And so the theme would have been um, celebration and deliverance around the table with Seder, Seder meals. And according to Deuteronomy in this time, you actually weren't allowed to celebrate the Passover outside of Jerusalem. And so what you would do is you would actually come into the city. And so what would happen in this time, um, if you remember sort of that, that timeline, this is the last week of Jesus' life, and it's, it's quite ironic that Jesus is coming to institute this meal at the same table, right? It's, it's the, the, he's in the Jerusalem, and some estimates is that the, the city would swell as high as 300,000 people. And everyone is jammed into the city to celebrate, like liberation and, and rescue. Our, our God is a deliverer. And they were remembering a dark time when God had showed up. 1,200 years before this, the Israelite people were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. They were trapped in bondage, and they cried out for a deliverer. And God sent them Moses. Uh, this is uh, captured in the book of Exodus. But God had delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, but he would do it through a specific way, through plagues. And the plagues were water turning to blood, frogs, uh, gnats, or like lice, uh, flies, boils, weather, darkness. And all of these were actually meant to uh, loosen Pharaoh's oppressive grip on the people. But then one night, God sent a final plague. 
And this plague was a sort of divine justice that wouldn't just fall on the Egyptians, but it would fall on everyone, Jew or Egyptian. And so in every home in Egypt, someone um, would die under the wrath of God's justice unless God made another way. The, the way that you escaped this plague of death was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. And you can read the whole thing in Exodus 12, but here's what the Israelites were instructed. You were to get a lamb, and you were to slaughter the lamb at twilight, and you would take the blood of the lamb and place it on the side and on the tops of the door frames of your house. And then the Israelite people were actually instructed to eat the lamb, cooked, of course. There were like all these instructions, bitter herbs and bread without yeast, um, and, and, and that this was the Passover. And then it says this in Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence, Passover. No destructive plagues will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so you put the blood of the lamb on the door of your house as a way of saying, God, not here. My faith is in you. I'll do what you say. And so at, at these homes on these nights, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb where God was bringing his divine justice and this plague of death would either fall on your family or would fall on a substitute, the blood of the lamb. And if the blood was there, then of course Passover would happen. And every year they would celebrate the Passover feast as a reminder that God had passed over their house, but also that God had delivered and liberated them from oppression and slavery and bondage. And so this was actually a meal to remember that God is faithful. Now, in the time of Jesus, the, the city would be filled with people at Passover, but it would also begin to fill with hope, hope of another liberation. In, in this time, they, in the time of Jesus, Israel um, was again under another oppressive weight, Rome. And the people were longing for an, another liberator. In the, the triumphal entry, people um, came with palm branches and said, Hosanna, God, God save us. Right? They, 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 were, they were saying, we feel like we're in bondage again. Are you there, God? Do you care? And so people went to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And what they would do is actually they would bring with them the expectation of the Messiah, the anointed one, one to come and deliver them from oppression and economic misery. And so what, what we should be hearing here is that the atmosphere in Jerusalem would be sort of a mixture of expectation and nervousness and hope and fear. And this is where Jesus comes to the disciples and says, here's, I want you to get the Passover feast ready. Because what Jesus is about to do on Thursday night before his death is he's about to say, I'm ready to institute a new meal. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, when I think about uh, the Lord's Supper, I think um, when I think about uh, walking forward in communion at church on Sunday, I, I, I feel like uh, it's this beautiful and reverent and special moment but i want you to hear in instituting the lord's supper how awkward this might be verse 17 when evening came jesus arrived with the 12 while they were reclining at the table he said truly i tell you one of you will betray me one who is eating with me right 
Like this is a, this is awkward dinner, like akin to going to a party where your ex is going to be, or like my parents have been divorced since I was seven, and I'll never forget them coming to um, my college graduation, and I'm just like, mom, that you over there, dad, you over there, just like for my sake, please don't interact with each other, right? This is sort of how I perceive this this moment where. Normally we would say this is the purest and, and holiest moment, like polished chalices and linen altar cloths and um, a, a deep introspection and this moment of ultimately, in the end, victory and joy actually began with a note of betrayal. And I love how human uh, th this text actually is. And, 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 and two, when you, when you continue to read the Oh, you, you, uh, Mark isn't giving us like relief, right? The guilty party is still sitting at the table and the people at the table have moved from blame shifting and, and soul searching. If you look in verse 19, it says they were saddened or in the Greek, it means like they were grieved in their heart. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me, right? All the way down the line, one by one, surely you don't mean me. Surely you don't mean me. Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, Jesus replied, one who dips bread in the bowl with me, right? And everyone's like, did you dip bread? Did you dip bread? Did you, did you dip bread, right? And I love that, you know, the, the focus in the text generally is on Judas as the person betraying uh, Jesus, how evil he is and how evil it would be that he could hand someone over like Jesus. But if you keep reading, they all abandoned Jesus, but Jesus still institutes the meal, right? While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In verse 22, there are actually um, seven different verbs used there. Eat take, bless, break, give, say, take. And what Jesus is, 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 is describing here with these verbs is he's saying, this is me. I, I'm the gift. I'm the offering. I'm the one that's going to, to do the work. And Jesus is very, very aware of who's at the table, right? He's not talking to, uh, to people with a short list of sins or perfect people. He's talking to people at the table who he knew would turn on him, that would scatter at the first sign of trouble who, who will say I never knew him and what Jesus is doing with his disciples here is he's forgiving them ahead of time it's like he's saying I know you will not be innocent of the blood of this cup I will not let that come between us what I will do instead is I will let my life become your life through this cup and through this bread and what are the elements of communion right bread and wine I could, could it be more simple? Like these are staples, the makeup of an everyday diet. But the important thing here is that in instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus makes a sacrament, one of the most essential and the most common of human activities, eating, right? The Lord's Supper is the most ordinary, right? Eating, but it's also the most divine gesture imaginable. And this is true of Jesus, right? Human, perfectly human, yet so divine. He's familiar but he's mysterious. There's this uh, 
beautiful story of a Trappist monk about his first communion, um, Christian de Church. He was actually kidnapped and, and murdered a martyr in Algeria in 1996. But he tells the story of his, his first communion in a, in a book, and he, he grew up in a Roman Catholic family. And on the day of his first communion, he leaned over to his mother and he said, I don't know what I'm doing. And she just answered simply to him, it's okay. You don't have to understand it now later you will understand and i actually think this is a more realistic understanding of the the institution of the lord's supper i think it's an awkward and clumsy and confusing but mysterious meal and like christian de church's mother jesus would be communicating something similar you do you don't have to understand it now later you will understand that's the reality of our lives some of the best things in life are not fully understood, but they're thoroughly experienced. And so what do we experience at this table? What is this table trying to to teach us? What can we um, think when we're coming to the the table, the communion table? And the first thing is this, I'll just share three things here. The first is that um, the Lord's Supper is a table of remembrance in a culture that forgets God. The Lord's Supper is a table of remembrance in a culture that forgets God. Uh, the instructions from Paul uh, around communion in, in 1 Corinthians um, are similar um, to our Mark passage here, but there's a, a crucial phrase that's added here. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Well, what's the phrase? Do this in remembrance of me. What does it mean to live in remembrance of something, right? What does it mean to live in remembrance of something? To live in remembrance means to live in the present moment in light of something in the past. To, to live in remembrance means to live in the present in light of something in the past. And so um, say you're lactose intolerant, right? You're, you're living in the present moment, not drinking milk because you know what happens happened to you in the past, right? You're letting your remembrance of the past change your behavior in the present, right? Um, maybe you'd say, um, I'm, I'm married or I'm in a relationship. I, I live relationally secure in the present in light of the commitment I made in the past, right? You're secure relationally because of the commitment that you made with someone else. And the Lord's Supper is a table of remembrance in a culture that forgets God. And the reason we live in remembrance is because we're prone to forgetting. I'm prone to forget that God created me and he cares for me and he provides for me. And the scripture says that he'll never leave me or forsake me. I'm prone to forget that God is in control. And so I don't have to try and manage every situation and outcome. I'm prone to forget that God loves me on my best day and on my worst day. I'm prone to forget that God said he'll provide for me and that I don't have to worry. And so I don't have to log into my bank account over and over and over again. And the reality is I have to remember because I often get drowned in my anxieties, in my work. But what we find in this act of remembrance going forward, taking communion, partaking together, is that remembrance is actually an act, an act of faith that defies the status quo of how we live. I mean, like, think about the, the practical implications here. Like you, you, you go to the table, right? Like a, you share a meal with your family. And what do you do there? You tell stories, right? 
it, it's a place where from generation to generation we learn who we are, where we came from, what we can be, to who we belong, and we actually at the table um, both make memories but live out past memories. This is part of the reason as a church we take communion every week to, to partake of this as a reminder of who we are. Uh, next, the Lord's Supper is also a table of dependence in a culture of independence, right? What does Paul continue to say in 1 Corinthians in verse 33? So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. I thought about this a lot over the last week. What if, what if our need for food is actually given given by God to us on purpose. Like we all get hungry, um, you know, more or less three times uh, a day. But what if this happens? Like what if we get hungry as a reminder that we are sustained by something outside of ourselves, right? Three times a day, your body is going to say to you, you need water, you need calories or, or whatever. And food is this sort of reminder that you are dependent Right? I know like we, we want to fight that. We want to say, like, I can figure it out on my own. I got this. But your very biology is, is saying you need something from outside of yourself to sustain you, to hold you, and to carry you. Right? And then for, for most of us, we, we, we must be honest and say, I'm going to have that hunger fulfilled. Right? My hunger is going to be satisfied. And I think this is a, like, I would, I would call it, um, you can disagree with me, but I would call it like a clue of God. Right? That ultimately... God is the one that, that satisfied that need. And so in one sense, um, the very presence of food is, is a basic way God says, I love you. I'm going to take care of you. You can trust me. I know what you need, right? And, and what we need is that reminder that we, we come to the table, we're actually dependent. I, I try and, and, and figure out life on my own. I, I, track like, I try to act like it's only me and I don't need anyone, but the truth is I'm lying, right? So when I come to the communion table and I, I take the, the bread and the, and the cup, I'm actually surrounded by people who are saying the exact same need. And here's the last thing. What if God has given us food as a sort of parable? A parable is an earthly story pointing to something spiritual. What if food is like a parable that's pointing to something else to pointing to something that's spiritual what if god gave us food to show us grace and what i mean is this that food is is something that satisfies us from the outside right and it's given to us as a gift right grace right something given to you that you cannot earn or achieve on your own or get by yourself but it's a gift and i have to wonder if God has not wired this into us, right? Followers of Jesus are people who believe that we're saved and forgiven and reconnected back to God, not by something we produce within ourselves, like trying to be a good person or doing enough right things in the world. But actually, um, we believe that what Jesus did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago completes and sustains us. And what if that everyday reminder that comes to us that we're hungry is just a reminder we need grace and we need God. The Lord's Supper is a table of grace in a culture of merit, right? What do, what do we do before we eat? We say grace. It's our way of saying, God, I need this and I need you, right? Food is a gift in a basic way. God says, I love you and I'm dependent 
uh, Norman Wiersbe writes in his book, Food and Faith, um, to say grace or offer a benediction of thanksgiving over a meal is among the highest and most honest expressions of our humanity. In this act, we show that we are committed to taking a humble place within the world, among each other, and before God, and demonstrate that we do not take our place and sustenance for granted. Here, around a table and before witnesses, we testify to the experience of life as a precious gift to be received and given again. We acknowledge that we do not and cannot live alone, but are beneficiaries of the kindness and mysteries of grace upon grace. And then what does Jesus say at the end of the passage? He says, this is the cup poured out for many. And so, how should we read this? Like, what's the prerequisites for this meal? Who can participate? Who can come to the table? And I love that Jesus mentions poured out for many. The way that I, I read it is the prerequisite to come to the table is need. People can come to the table. All can come to the table who can announce plainly and clearly, boldly, that they fall short of God's standards, that they're in need of something outside of themselves to sustain themselves, that they're falling short every day, but that while we were God's enemies, we were actually reconciled to him through the death of his son, which he's giving us a picture of. And so the Lord's Supper is a table of remembrance in a culture that forgets God. It's a table of dependence in a culture of independence, and it's a table of grace and a culture of merit. Let me pray for you. So Lord, I love you. I, I thank you for this passage. Thank you for um, our church and this community that you're um, molding and crafting and loving. And um, I just pray that um, week after week as we come to uh, the table that we would be reminded of who we are, that our identity is fully secure in you that we would be reminded that we need you and that we need each other, and that we would be reminded that the work has been finished, that you have done the work, that you are gracious, and we don't deserve it, we can't earn it, and yet you give it to us anyway. Lord, we love you, thank you. In your name we pray, amen.